Grab your Bibles, guys. If you haven't got a Bible, um, Alan can grab you on the back. If you haven't noticed, Alan and I have um, conferred on our wardrobe this afternoon, and we're both wearing the same uniform. Shame on all of you, all the people who didn't didn't join in. But Alan's promised if I if I can't handle things, he's going to step in and take over preaching. That's what you said, Alan. So we'll see how we get on. If you haven't got a Bible, Alan will grab you on. We're on page. Um, 61, Exodus chapter 20, the second half of Exodus chapter 20. We've got, we've got four chapters to, to work through this afternoon. As you know, we're working through the book of Exodus. We started way back in February just to catch up on where we are. We looked at God's people being in Egypt and slave, but God has given them a promise. And a promise really that starts right back in Genesis chapter 3 that he's going to save a people. He's going to bring a people to himself. And we see this movement through the early chapters of Exodus of God doing something on a a small scale that eventually he's going to do on a grand cosmic scale when he sends the Lord Jesus Christ. But he saves his people out of slavery. He frees them. And haven't we seen over the last few weeks that he doesn't just save his people to be free. He saves his people to be free, but to be his people. He wants to show his glory to them so that they would show his glory to the nations around him. The people of God have a missional purpose. We're not just saved to be free from sin and how glorious that is and how wonderful that is. We are saved to tell the world about the goodness of God, to share the good news of salvation to those around us. And even in the Ten Commandments, which Ryan and Andy walked us through over the last couple of weeks, even in the Ten Commandments, which so often we just see as a list of rules, right? Like God gives us these 10 rules that we have to live by. We saw even in those 10 commandments that actually, firstly, they are given to God's people to help us to be distinctive. Like if we truly lived our lives in accordance with the commandments that God gave us, we would look different, wouldn't we? And not just, not necessarily physically, but certainly in the way that we live, in the way that we manage our resources, in the type of conversations that we have, in the places that we go, in the, the people that we love, in the way that we love, we would look distinctive. And that's what we saw with the Ten Commandments. They are missional. They're not just there to tell us what to do and what not to do. They are there to make God's people distinctive. And then last week we saw as Ryan went through the Ten Commandments with us again. Really, the Ten Commandments also show us our inability to keep them, keep them. Like not one of us can keep all of those commandments, can we? Like we're liars if we are, and if we're liars, then you've already failed because that's one of the Ten Commandments. But it points us towards one who can. It points us towards our need for a saviour and our need ultimately for Jesus. Ten Commandments are missional. They make us a distinctive people and they point us to Jesus. And folks, we, we need Jesus. We so need him. And I don't know about you, but, but the news this week and just the constant turmoil that we see in the world, and if we're honest in our own hearts, just shouts louder and louder how much we need Jesus. Every single one of us, from the oldest to the youngest, I didn't point to whoever the oldest is because I don't know. <laughs> Every single one of us is born into a world of chaos. This world is chaotic and we've been confronted with the chaos of this world in, in full HD this week. Think of what's happened over in America and Texas with the shootings in the primary school. Like that is a 
picture of chaos that an 18-year-old can pick up an automatic rifle and murder 19 children, two teachers. Think about just the political situation in, in our own country. Like This isn't a political statement, but it is chaotic, isn't it? The lies, the cover-ups, the manipulation. And even kind of just taking a sidestep, thinking about the football this isn't a football statement, but if you saw it last night, you would have seen the chaotic scenes beforehand. People were trying to get in and, and the police intervening, tear gas and just scenes of chaos. That's how the pundits described it. It was chaotic scenes. And in fact, that's just one example of, we've seen that over and over over the last couple of weeks, haven't we? Pitch invasions and, and managers and players being assaulted. Gareth Southgate in a press conference this week, this is what he said. The fan disorder seen at football matches is a reflection of where we are as a country at the moment. Like that's, he's kind of above his pay grade there. Like he's talking in, in kind of ways and, 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 in, and in, in themes that really got nothing to do with football. But what he says is right. The chaos that we see is a reflection of where we are as a country at the moment. Not our country on its own, but the whole world. And that's just what's out there. What about what's in our, our own hearts? Like we see chaotic scenes on the news and in the football pitches, but what about what's going on in our own lives and in our own hearts? So often our own lives feel like chaos, don't they? I was speaking to someone recently who described it brilliantly, described life a, a little bit like, you know that game when you're kids, when you, you put a hand on a hand, that one? And there's just a few of you, but you keep on pulling the hand out and slapping it on and slapping it on. And you think that the game's going to stop until the guy or the girl at the bottom puts their hand. And it just feels like hands on top of hands piling up one after another. And that's what life feels like sometimes. It certainly felt like that for me recently. Just, just kind of lots of things coming. And you think that things are going to slow down and calm down. You think that the chaos is going to subside. But then something else comes and slaps itself on top. Many of us, chaos is the word that best summarizes our life at the moment. And there's nothing good about chaos. Chaos is a joyless place. Now, as we get to Exodus chapter 20, all the way through to chapter 24, we get to what appears to be some of the more obscure and maybe irrelevant passages to us in the Exodus story. These collection of chapters, chapter 21, 22, 23, they're commonly called the Book of Covenants and they come hot on the heels of the Ten Commandments. And when you read through them, like you know when you get sometimes the bit of the Bible and you're like, this has got nothing to do with me, nothing to do with my life. This is culturally totally irrelevant and you kind of flick past and just get to the next bit. These chapters feel a little bit like that. Like just have a little scan through and you'll see what I mean. You get laws about slaves. You get laws about a man, a father selling his daughter as a slave. That just doesn't feel relevant to us. You have laws about how you treat your livestock. Laws about if you fall into an open pit, what to do. Now, if you're on our roads at the moment, there's a lot of United Utilities work going on. Elizabeth nearly drove into a hole, so maybe this is one that could be slightly relevant. But laws about oxen and sheep, about grain, about about your neighbour and his donkey. Like a lot of it just seems totally irrelevant to us. Like what on earth has this got to do with being a Christian in 21st century? Liverpool, but here's the thing, folks. There is a transformational lesson that God is teaching his people in the book of covenant, 
in these few chapters, and it's this. I'll throw it up on, or Karis will throw it up on the screen. Mm, sound effects, nice. There is a path that leads away from chaos into joy. And it's found when we walk in obedience to our gracious God. That is what God is really teaching. in amongst all of these strange, peculiar laws that might not feel like they're really relevant to us, we see that there is a path that leads away from chaos into joy. And it's found when we walk in obedience to our gracious God. You see, the value in these chapters here, and we can't read through them all, and we can't unpack them all. What I would encourage you to do is go away and have a little read through and just see what's said. And maybe if you've got questions, bring them to Gospel Community on Wednesday. But really, the value for us today isn't necessarily in what these laws are telling us to do, but rather what they're telling us about God. That's what we really need to learn. What are these laws telling us about God? Not necessarily what they're telling us to do. And before we unpack them, before we get really to the nub of what they're telling us about God, let me just kind of give us a little rule or a tool for how we handle these strange and peculiar laws. It's this. We need to see that God's will for humanity is unchangeable, but how it is expressed does change. God's will for humanity is unchangeable, but how that will is expressed does change. Let me explain. These four chapters, the book of covenants, we have laws from God in here, but not all of those laws are for us to follow. So Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments, what we have there are timeless principles, the unchangeable will for God, from God for humanity. The Ten Commandments are like an ethical code for humanity. The Ten Commandments are the road from chaos to joy. Like if your life feels chaotic, if you just have a real sense of the brokenness of the world and you want to move away from that, move away from chaos towards joy, then hold on to what God tells you to do and how he calls you to live in the Ten Commandments. And if you can't kind of remember all 10 of them, then just listen to what Jesus says. Jesus boils the Ten Commandments down to this. Love God and love your neighbor. Like if you can just hold on to that rule for the rest of your life, you are on a sure road from chaos towards joy. The Ten Commandments, those commandments boiled down to love God and love your neighbor. These commandments aren't defined by culture. They're not defined by geography. They're not defined by time. They're timeless ethical foundations given to us by God. And interesting, that is why in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 10, when Moses is reflecting back to to this time at Sinai, he remembers that the Ten Commandments are written by God in stone. They're written in stone. They're unchangeable. They're permanent. Whereas these laws in the book of Covenant, chapter 21, 22, 23, they're written on parchment. They're particular for a certain people, their cultural expressions of the Ten Commandments. They're specific for God's people at that time in that place. It's a little bit like case law. They're case studies which point us towards God's will. They're illustrative examples of how the Ten Commandments are worked out in specific everyday situations that Israel would have faced, but we probably wouldn't. And so the value for us today isn't seeing what these laws are telling us to do, but rather to see what they're showing us and telling us about God and why we should obey him. Because here's the thing. We could easily just print out the Ten Commandments, give them out to everyone and say, all right, off you go, go and do it. 
and not one of us will go out this door and nail them up. Not one of us even would go out this door and think, yeah, that is what I'm going to give my life to this week. Like how many times, just think back on this week, how many times have we felt or heard or read God calling us to walk in a, in a certain way? God calling us to obedience in a certain way. God calling us to obey one of his commandments this week. I don't know, like maybe, maybe you've been in a situation and you know that God would say, don't be angry. And yet you've gone the other way. Maybe you've been in a situation and you've, you've, you, you know God's commandment not to be jealous, but you've looked on that thing that someone else has and you've been jealous. You've been in a situation where your kids have just been kind of winding you up and you know that God says don't exacerbate your children and yet you just give them both barrels. You know that God says not to run after other gods and yet you've chased, chased after idols this week. This week you know that God has said don't lust after things that aren't yours. And yet that's exactly what you've done this week. How many times in this last week, maybe even today, have we known that God has called us and is calling us in a certain way and we've just resisted him and walked our own way? All of us have done it. Like I've lost count of how many times I've done it. All of us have done it. And even if you're not a Christian, your conscience tells you what is the right way to go. And you've resisted as well. We need to unpack what is in here and see the reasons then why it is good for us today. Why it is good to hear God's voice in his commands and to obey. And the first reason is this. We obey God because he wants our joy. I've got five reasons I'm going to sit here for most of our time because this is really fundamental. We obey God because he wants our joy. Now, if you've got in your head, when you think about God and you think about God wanting you to to listen to his voice and walk in his ways and obey his commandments. If in your mind you've got kind of this old man sitting up there just barking out instructions, telling you what to do and what not to do. That is not God. God wants your joy. He wants you to experience the fullness of joy and obedience to God is that path to joy because it leads us away from chaos. Again, if you're feeling that chaotic life and you know there's chaos in your heart or you're experiencing it in the brokenness around you, then walk in obedience to God because that is the path away from chaos and a path towards joy. And we see that in these four chapters. In fact, we see it throughout the whole of the Exodus story. God wants joy for his people. He wants to lead us away from chaos See, I said right to the start that all of us are born into chaos. But that isn't how God created the world, is it? Back in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, I'm sure that God created the world out of chaos, but he, he brought order and he placed his people into a place of order. And we know come Genesis chapter 3, sin enters the world and, and God's beautiful creation is, is cursed and we feel a sense of brokenness and chaos overwhelming us. The whole of the Exodus story, the whole of the Exodus story is a story of God recreating or trying to restore what we once enjoyed back in Eden. And there's hints and arrows pointing back to the Garden of Eden all over the Exodus story. Remember back in chapter one? Remember the first few verses that we read in chapter one? And Moses talks about God's people in in Egypt multiplying. 
and, and spreading across. The, they were all over the land. And that's the same language, remember, that, that Moses uses in Genesis chapter 1 to describe how, how God wants humanity to fill and to multiply across the earth. In Exodus chapter 2, when Moses was born, Moses' mother says that he was good. She gives birth to Moses and declares that he is good, which is just like God declaring in Genesis chapter 1 when he looks on creation and sees that it is good. Remember, as God's people crossed through the Red Sea, God separated the water and the dry land and he does it through his breath. He sends a wind across the waters. It's the same word that is used in the creation account of God separating the water from the dry land. And in a couple of weeks, we're going to get into the detail of the tabernacle. You've heard of the tabernacle, right? This, this tent that God's people are told to build in the middle of the desert. And all of the, you would get to the details and the details look a bit random and the, the objects in the tent look a bit random. But honestly, I can't wait to get to this bit because it's, it's incredibly uh, just illustrative of how God is bringing about Eden again because the dimensions, the objects, everything that is in the tabernacle pulls us back to Eden. God is making another Eden in the midst of his people. It's throughout the story of Exodus. God's people are being recreated. He's constantly pulling them back to the creation story. And what is the great movement of creation? Chaos to order. That's what God does. He, he brings order out of chaos. That's what he does at the beginning of time. He brings order out of the formless cosmos. And when he does in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, there is joy for God's people. There is flourishing for humanity as all of creation conformed in obedience to God. And we know that creation descend into chaos as Adam and Eve rebelled against God. But God didn't step back and be like, right, you're on your own, guys. You deal with the chaos. I'm done with you. He didn't cut ties with us. God didn't relent. He sent his son to die for our sin so that we could receive his resurrection life. He is a God of order and the life that he gives us is a life of order, not of chaos. And every day in the hearts and lives of his people, he is bringing order into the chaos of our lives through the sanctifying work of his word and his spirit. You see, there's a pattern through scripture, a pattern through the Bible, that obedience to God is a path to joy. Don't look at the commands that God gives you and think, this is robbing me of joy. This is constraining me. That isn't true at all. All the way through scripture, you see obedience to God is a path to joy. If you want to experience the flourishing life, the joyful life that God promises for his people, then we walk in obedience. So think about the Garden of Eden. God doesn't say to Adam and Eve, don't touch that tree. Don't touch the fruit of that tree because he wants to rob them of their joy. He wants to protect their joy. God doesn't say to Noah's, uh, uh, the people in Noah's day, repent and come into the ark because he wants to spoil their fun. He wants to save them from destruction. God doesn't say to the people in Moses' day, obey these commandments because he wants to put them back into slavery. He says it because he wants them to flourish. God's motivation in wanting us to walk in obedience to him is because he wants to preserve our joy. God's law isn't about keeping people in line. God isn't standing there with a big stick wanting to, to just beat you up and make sure you're doing the right thing. 
God's commandments are there for his people to flourish. He wants to lead us away from chaos, lead us into joy. And obedience to his word is the road that takes us there. That's why he gives these laws to his people in chapter 21, 22 and 23. That's why he puts flesh on the bones of the Ten Commandments so that they can be really sure what it looks like for them to, to obey him. God is zealous for their joy. That's a great reason why we can obey him. Secondly, we can obey God because he's God. Uh, that kind of sounds obvious. But actually, if we really understand what that means, it really helps us walk in obedience. Just look down at, with me at chapter 20. In this book of covenant, chapters 20, 21, 22, 23, you get this kind of sandwich. So you get a, a repeated declaration from God at the start and at the end. So that's like the bread of the sandwich. And then in the middle, the meat or the lettuce, if you're that way inclined, um, is the commandments. Okay, this is what it looks like to live in obedience. But either side, God makes a declaration that is important to hear. So in chapter 20, verse 22 and 23, we hear this. The Lord said to Moses, thus you shall say to the people of Israel, you have seen for yourselves that I have taught with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. Then flick to the end, chapter 23, verse um, 32 and 33. And this is what we read. You shall make no covenant with them. So this is God leading his people into the promised land. And he says, okay, this is how you engage with the nations around you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. So there's this repeated declaration from God, stay away from false gods. Stay away from idols. Why? Because he is the only true God. There is only one true God and it's me. So don't make false idols. Don't engage with the idols of the Canaanites and the, and the Hittites as you come into their lands. I am the one true God. And it is so important for them to know that. It is so important for them to know that God is God because that is what's going to help them walk in obedience to who he is. It's going to help them to see that they can obey him because he is God. He's teaching them an important truth here. An important truth when it comes to leaving the chaos in our lives. That his is the word that is above all other words. His words are the ones that we need to listen to and follow in our pursuit of joy because he is God. And folks, we need to hear that because we struggle with it. Because God tells us to do and not do so many things in here. And so often we choose just to close it, put it to one side and listen to another voice. Whether it's the voice of our heart, our flesh, whether it's a voice in the world. We choose other voices over his voices. But if only we would see that he is God, then we would listen to him all the more. Like just think of how many other voices that we listen to. Good voices in the world. Doctors, nurses, teachers, engineers. And think how easily we listen to what they say and follow their instructions. Like if I have an infection, I'll go to the GP and she'll, you know, check me over a couple of minutes if if I'm lucky. And then she'll write me a prescription for, um, what do they give you for infections? Antibiotics. Antibiotics. (laughs) With a, a funny Latin name, probably, that I've never ever heard of. I'll take the prescription, take it to the, the pharmacist get the drugs, happily take them every day for seven days without a question. 
I've got no idea what's in that little capsule. But after a 60-second consultation with some words that I don't even know what they mean, I'll listen to it, I'll take it, and I'll trust it. Folks, God is far and above any doctor, GP, engineer, teacher, scientist in this world. How often do we hear his voice and think, I'm okay, I know better. I'll write my own prescription, thank you very much. It's foolish. It's reckless. And these are wonderful people. I'm not saying we shouldn't take our prescriptions. We should. But they're not God. When God calls us to walk a path of obedience, we can trust him more than anyone else because of who who he is. Because he is God. Thirdly, we can obey him because he's loving. Like these laws, like please do take a bit of time just to read them through. Because they're quirky, they're interesting, and a lot of it isn't quite relevant to us, but they do teach us something about the heart of God for humanity. And the heart of God for humanity is that he loves us. Each of these laws shows us that in some, some way. If we just peel back the layers and see what's going on. We'll just do one for an example. So look at chapter 21, verses 28 to 29. So this is the law of the ox. Okay, hands up. Anyone got an ox? A bull? Georgina? No, that was a terrible lie. You need to go back to the Ten Commandments and do some work. None of us have got an ox. So on the surface, this is like, okay, let's keep moving. It's not relevant, but actually, let's see what's going on. Chapter 21, verse 28. When an ox gores a man, so I'm picturing he kind of runs at him, thing through, through the middle, like kills a guy. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, The ox shall be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has been warned, but has not kept it in and it kills a man or woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owner also shall be put to death. So here we are, we've kind of got this picture of someone who's got an ox and and there's two situations. One situation is accidentally the ox is released and it kills someone. The other situation is it's got a track record. Like this is an angry bull. Like people know about it. He's been warned to look after his bulls, to keep it away from everyone else. And he ignores those warnings. And this, this uh, bull, this ox goes out and it kills someone. Now we might think, totally irrelevant. It's never going to come to any use for us in our situation in 21st century Liverpool at all. Yet this law is expressing something of God's will. Remember, God's will is unchangeable, but the way it's expressed might change depending on culture, geography, time. God's will is unchangeable. And this law is expressing something of God's will for humanity that is timeless. It's teaching us two things. Firstly, in the first situation where it seems to be accidental, it's teaching us that people shouldn't be held responsible for an honest accident. Oh man, I need to hear that. God's teaching his people Israel and teaching us that actually what we need in our relationships with our employers, with our employees, with our families, with our spouses, with our children, what we need is to cultivate a culture of grace. Wives, listen to this. When your husband makes a mistake, an honest mistake, don't bear down on him. Don't judge him. No, I'm serious. Be gracious to him. Be gracious to him. Say, oh, it's okay, don't worry. I know it was an accident. 
Husbands, you do the same for your wives. Parents, do that for your children. When they make an honest mistake, don't bear down on them. Don't judge them. Don't berate them. See it as an honest accident. Cultivate a culture of grace and say, it's okay, son. It's okay, daughter. There might be consequences. We'll deal with that. But it's okay. I forgive you. We can, we can move on. You see the timeless principle here that we're learning? Now, there's a second situation, isn't there? The, the ox, the bull, he's got a track record. He's an angry guy. He's done this before. The owner should have listened to the warnings, but he doesn't. The ox goes out again and kills someone. So the second lesson here is that we should take measures to prevent accidents happening. And when we don't, there are consequences. And so we should be sensible. We should steward the gifts that God has given us well. We shouldn't be reckless with what we have. If you're reckless with your money time and time again, then there are consequences for that. If you're reckless with your, with your sexuality as a gift, then there are consequences for that. And you have to walk in that. There's, there is grace for us when we make honest mistakes and honest accidents. But if we're running to the same sin time and time again, there comes a time and a point where enough is enough. And it's right to be told that. And it's right to walk in the consequences of that. Oxes, bulls, nothing to do with us. But actually the principles, the timeless principles, everything to do with us. And you can do that for every one of the laws that is in this book of covenant. There are laws in here of how you protect women. There are laws in here of how you engage with a foreigner who comes in to the midst of your society. There are laws in here of how you deal with your children. And they might be kind of masked up with with things that might seem irrelevant, but there are timeless principles in there for God's people. And in each law, what you see is that God is protecting his image bearers and he is creating boundaries for us to flourish. Why? Because he loves us. Because he loves us. You know, when God tells you not to do something, it isn't because he hates you. I remember when I was a lot younger, maybe five or six, my mum had made a tray full of, um, I can't remember what they were, some cakes, and they were boiling hot. And she kind of put them on a cooling rack, as you do. They just come out of the oven. And I saw them come out, could smell them, followed the smell, went into the room, and I was literally so close to grabbing one my mum came into the, door, into the door and she shouted at me and she told me to leave them alone until later. And I remember walking out the door so angry at my mother. Like I wanted that cake and why she wouldn't give me that cake. And it's just something that sticks in my mind. I was angry. I remember walking up the stairs when her back was turned and mouthing things to her when her back was turned. And now with a wife as a baker, I know why she told me not to eat them. Number one, because it probably would have burned my mouth. Number two, because they're not as nice as when they've cooled down and when they've got the icing on and when they've got all the good stuff on. But I just wanted what I wanted and I couldn't see that actually my mum was loving me in, in that moment. By telling me not to touch and to wait, that was an act of love. And in all of God's commands, he's creating boundaries for us to flourish because he loves us. In fact, isn't that how Jesus sums up the commandments? Love God and love your neighbor. His commandments are all wrapped up and founded on a foundation of love. And so we can obey him because he loves us. Next, we can obey him because he's gracious. 
He gives us his laws. He gives us the Ten Commandments. He gives us ways to live. Love God. Love your neighbor. And he knows that we're going to fail in keeping them all the time. God knows that we're not robots who automatically choose obedience, which is why he gives us grace. It's why we need grace. That's why he gives grace to his people as he gives them these laws. Look down again at chapter 20, verse 24. So he's given them the Ten Commandments, these kind of uh, timeless ethical foundations. He's going to put flesh on the bones in the book of covenant. But before he even gets to those laws, look at what he does in verse 24, uh, 22 to 24 of chapter 20. Um, sorry, no, in, in verse 24 of chapter 20, he says, An altar of earth you shall make for me, and a sacrifice on it, uh, your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and I will bless you. Before he even gives them the laws in the book of covenant, God gives them an instruction. He says, Build an altar. Build an altar that you can make sacrifices on. And we know what the sacrificial system was for. It was to give payment for their sin. So when they sacrificed an animal, that animal was, was a, a sacrifice in place of the sinner. The animal experienced the pain. The animal experienced death in place of the one who deserved it. And so before they even get the laws, God says, build an altar. You're going to need it. I'm going to give you laws to live by, but you're going to need this as well because you're going to fail them all the time. He already knows that they are going to fail. And so he provides for them a way of making atonement, a way of making payment for their failure of the law. And then look at the end of the book of covenants again in chapter 23, verse 20 and 21. God says this, I will send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him for he will not pardon your transgression for my name is in him. So he gives them an altar. He gives them a a way to, to make amends for their sin, to make sacrifice for their sin. And he gives them one to follow. They're going to follow the angel. They're going to listen to his words. The angel is going to lead them in in and on the path that leads to joy and away from chaos. God doesn't lead them to work out on their own. He gives them a guide with the angel and he gives them a means for forgiveness with the altar and sacrifice. God is a gracious God, folks. He gives that to his people then and he gives it to us now. They had a guide and they had a means of forgiveness and so do we. In God's word, we have a guide for living as he has called us to live. We have a guide that keeps us on the road that leads from chaos to joy, towards that flourishing life that he wants us to live. We have his word and we have his Holy Spirit. God has given us his spirit. And what is the one of the wonderful works that the Holy Spirit does? Points us towards Jesus. And what do we see when we look at Jesus? And for his people, we see one who has made a way for us to walk in the ways that he's called us to. Why? Because he has died for our sin and he has given us his righteousness. As the spirit draws us to see Jesus, we see one who has purchased our forgiveness, past, present and future. As our mind and our hearts and our eyes are drawn towards Jesus, we see the one who has made atonement for all of our sins. As our minds are drawn to Jesus, we see the one who has secured our forgiveness, made payment for our sin and has given us his Holy Spirit 
to lead us into paths of righteousness. Folks, we are sinful, and so we need God's grace. Don't fall into the trap or the lie of thinking, oh, my sin's too God, too big for God to handle. Or I can catch God by surprise with my sin. No, we see, even just in these verses, God knows that you are going to sin. And he has already provided a way for our forgiveness. Which leads us to the final lesson that we learn. We don't walk in obedience to please God. He already is. God is already pleased with his people. We don't walk in obedience to try and earn his favour. We don't keep his commands because, because we think that we've got to do something so that he will be happy with us. He already is. Why? Because his son Jesus has already fulfilled the law for us. Jesus perfectly fulfills and embodies love for God and love for others. And in his resurrection, through the power of his resurrection, we are united to him. And so the verdict over our lives of where God's people isn't, do better. Isn't you've failed me again. It isn't try harder. It isn't you are such a disappointment. The verdict over us is you are my child in whom I am well pleased. Because that is what God says of his son and we are found in his son. We can obey God because the weight is off. He's already pleased with us. As I close, I want to just call us and lead us to see that all of this, walking on this road of obedience, this path of obedience from chaos to joy, we can't do that in our own strength. Obedience comes to us through faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. None of us will be good enough. And so we need faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is faith that helps us walk in obedience. Faith and obedience are a little bit like um, the clutch and, and the gears, right? We all know how, we haven't got a clue, have we? All right. A, a gearbox and, and um, what am I doing? Don't even try and go there. All right. Think of a manual car, right? And before you move it into gear, we've all heard the old ladies crunch it and try and try and get it in without engaging the clutch. You've got to push your foot to the floor on the clutch, old ladies or Ella. <laughs> um, you've got to put your foot on the clutch, engage the clutch, and then you shift it into gear, right? So imagine clutch is faith and obedience is the gear. We have no hope of walking in obedience without faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are a, a believer, if you are one of God's people, You need to walk by faith. If you are struggling to walk in the commands that God has called you into, if there are specific areas in your life where you are running towards sin, running towards disobedience, knowing that God is calling you onto passive flourishing away from the chaos that you experience with sin, then can I encourage you, engage the clutch. Ask God by his spirit to give you faith to believe that Jesus is better. His ways are higher. He loves you. He delights in you. He has already forgiven you for all of your failures. Ask the Holy Spirit to give you faith to believe that this week as you head out of these doors so you can walk in obedience to him. You cannot do it on your own. And if you're not a Christian, you need that faith. You will never be good enough. You will never be good enough to earn favour with God. But also you can never sin more 
than you think to earn his favour, which comes to you through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no sin that is too big for him to deal with. There is no sin that is too big for the cross to deal with. There is no sin that is more powerful than the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So put your faith in Jesus. By the power of his spirit, walk in obedience. And as you do, you will see that you are walking away from chaos and walking into joy, which is the place of flourishing that God has ordained for his people. So as we wrap things up here, I want to just spend a moment in quiet, just reflection. I'm going to ask us a couple of questions and pray for us. I'm going to finish. Ryan's going to come up and lead us through communion. Can I suggest we use communion as a time? Ryan will lead us through to reflect on life, death, resurrection of Jesus, but also we pray for each other. Just people with your, who you're with or alongside, we just take a moment to pray. We believe that this meal is a way that God feeds his people, feeds our faith. And that's what we need this week, our faith to be fed so we can we can walk in the ways that God is calling us to work. So Ryan will lead us through that, but can I encourage us and ask us just to spend a few moments praying as we do. But before we do that, let's just kind of close our eyes. I'm going to lead us in prayer. Just ask us a few questions. Just spend this time to reflect, to cry out to Jesus, to hold on to him in faith. So let's ask ourselves, Thinking back on this week or these last few weeks, where are we resisting God? What areas of our lives are we running towards chaos instead of running towards Jesus and the joy that he has for us? you're a Christian do you believe that God is pleased with you he already delights with you in you and if you aren't a Christian what lies are you listening to about about who God is and what he wants for your life Finally, what will it look like for you to love God and love others this week? With the help of God, by the power of his spirit, what will it look like for you to love God and love others this week? Father, we come to you and we ask for your help. We need it. We're weak and we are prone to wonder. So often we do walk towards the chaos that we find and in disobedience, instead of walking to the joy and flourishing that is found in obedience to you. So help us, we pray. We thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you that he has already forgiven us for our failures. Give us faith to believe that that is true. Give us faith to believe that that his grace is sufficient for us, that we don't need to, to walk in obedience to earn favor from you. You already delight in us. You're already pleased in us because you see us in your son. And Holy Spirit, we we depend on you. Fill us, lead us, draw us towards the path that, 
that we should be on this way. Draw us away from sin. Help us to see it for what it is. Chaotic, destructive, disobedient, and foolish. It is letting go of joy. Letting go of flourishing. So give us the eyes to see the, the truthfulness of the word of God this week. Help us to hold on to it. Help us to believe it. Help us to love it. And help us to follow in obedience, not out of duty, but out of love for our King Jesus and for all that he has done. It's in his name that we pray.